Welcome to the Neuropedic Sports Rehab Podcast. I'm your host, Ramez Antoon, but please call me Mez. I'm a physical therapist and a strength coach. And in this show, we talk about the continuum of clinical practice to getting back to training in the gym. We focus on sustainable performance and longevity. I'd like to thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoy our show. Before we start, if you're a sports PT interested in a virtual mentorship, make sure you stick around for after the episode. We have more details about our 12-week mentorship program that we've been getting awesome feedback from our students. Also, if you like to consume content by reading, we drop a weekly newsletter every Friday morning with free sports rehab and fitness content. So if you're interested, make sure you check out the episode description where we have a link to sign up for our weekly newsletter. All right, without further delay, let's get into today's episode. Today's question comes from my boy Manny up in Boston, Massachusetts. The question is, when is imaging actually helpful? I actually had someone else ask me this as well, is when should we consider an MRI? So given the poor correlation with imaging, pain, and dysfunction these days, asking ourselves when does imaging actually matter is a really good question. And I'm going to try to get as practical as I can during this episode. And at the very end, I'm going to provide you guys with a clinical case study to help maybe tie things all together. But a couple things that I want to start off with is number one is we can't use imaging in a vacuum. Or in other words, imaging matters when we have a pattern or a cluster of findings between both the subjective history and the objective physical exam. So I'm going to go into the subjective history and the objective exam uh, a little bit deeper. So the subjective history, let's start there first. So what are some things to consider in the subjective history? Number one, the mechanism of injury. That's the first thing that comes to my mind is, was there a sudden event? Was there a spike in velocity, a unexpected increase amount of force. If that is a part of the subjective history, I will dive deeper into the mechanism of injury. I, I want the patient or the client to be able to show me what it looked like if they can, um, replicate the movement so that I can get an idea of the situation and the position that they were in. Number two is what's the time frame? Was this a recent onset? Or was this a chronic reoccurring situation? Uh, For example, how has it been managed from the very beginning if it was chronic? So are we dealing with a type A sedentary person where they're afraid to move and ever since it happened, they've just been avoiding any type of movement or avoiding any type of uh, pain? Or are we dealing with a type A fitness enthusiast who's barely given it a break? I see this all the time with uh, managing the patient in the early phases of a of an injury or of a um, sensitivity. If you're dealing with two very different personalities, your self-care management can look very, very different. So I think that's something to really consider when you're thinking about imaging because if the if the injury wasn't managed well in the beginning, For example, if they were moving too much or if they weren't moving enough, then maybe imaging is put on the back burner until we clean up 
the management process of an injury. The other thing to consider is, did they even do a formal rehabilitation process? So the just the basics of managing load and progressing physical activity. Those are things that I will ask right off the bat in the subjective history when considering an MRI. And then the last thing that I want to bring up with this is, is there any pain at night or is there early morning pain and stiffness that gets better with movement? So aside from any red flags that we should be asking in the intake process, cancer and whatnot, night pain, early morning pain and stiffness that improves with movement, that gives us a suspicion of an inflammatory process. Why? Because at night, our blood pressure is lower just because we're not moving. So inflammatory soup can build up in an area that is trying to heal. And with a buildup of inflammatory soup, we get some stiffness, achiness, pain. So if that is a subjective report in the very beginning, then we want to consider that there might be an inflammatory process going on and then manage the patient appropriately or accordingly. The other thing I'll ask is uh, if they're trying, if they have tried any anti-inflammatories and if that has helped a lot in terms of pain and their ability to move, that also gives us a hint that there might be an inflammatory situation going on. And after a time frame of proper management and progression of activity, if they're still not um, significant improvement in their situation, at that time we may consider an MRI to supplement the rehabilitation process. But I'm going to bring up the point from before is, again, we can't look at imaging in a vacuum. So it would literally assist and be a supplement to the rehab process versus just inadvertently going in and just getting an MRI because the person has pain. Okay, so now let's talk about the physical exam. Those are some things to consider in terms of subjective history. But now let's get into the physical exam or the movement assessment. In my opinion, and in my experience, a lot of imaging and MRIs have been done without a thorough movement assessment. And I think the movement assessment is critical. A proper systematic physical exam can really assist in the uh, determination if an MRI or an imaging is appropriate. So the first question to ask ourselves going into the objective exam, and I'm going to quote Carl Levitt and Gray Cook here. Carl Levitt has said, are we primarily dealing with a structural or a functional pathology? Said another way by Gray Cook, is the client moving poorly because they're in pain or are they in pain because they're moving poorly? So in, in other words, are they limping because they have an ankle sprain? Or are they limping because the ankle sprain is healed and now they have a stiff ankle? Knowing that after you do a physical exam is really important because we don't want to go after a, as Carl Levitt would call it, a functional pathology. In other words, let's say a, a locked up thoracic spine with a painful shoulder, if the painful shoulder is actually due to a tendonitis or a labral involvement, the 
thoracic spine may be secondary to managing that sensitivity or that or that pain. So that's those are the questions going into the physical exam. Now, another point to make here is the physical exam should reproduce the primary clinical complaint through mechanical stress. And if the pain can't be reproduced through mechanical stressing the area, if you will, then we have to suspect that this may not be a musculoskeletal origin. So we should refer out in that case. And a really, really good quote from Dr. James Syriax here that I like to bring up before we go into, into the physical exam any further is, and I'll quote, it is well to remember that the object of the physical exam is to find the movement that elicits the pain of which the patient complains rather than some nebulous symptom of which they were previously unaware. Only by sticking to a standard sequence will the physician be sure of leaving nothing out and only by leaving nothing out are true findings feasible. The physician arrives at a diagnosis not from the evidence furnished by one painful movement, but by careful detection of a consistent pattern. I love this quote by Dr. James Syriax because it really highlights one of the key features of the physical exam. As we're going through the physical exam, it is so important for us to ask the patient if the movement that we are doing reproduces the pain that brought them in the door rather than some other, as he says, nebulous symptom that they were previously unaware of. Because only when we reproduce the pain can we actually create some type of um, conclusion or hypothesis as to what is going on. So going into the physical exam, we want to know, okay, is this primarily a structural or a functional pathology? And given the question that we're answering in this episode, we're thinking, okay, how do we rule out a structural pathology here through the physical exam? The question that we're asking ourselves as we go through the objective exam is, is this a intra-articular or an extra-articular sensitivity? In other words, is there a sensitivity in the actual joint or is the sensitivity in a structure that is outside of the joint? just to keep it super macro and, and to give ourselves some type of categorization and um, framework going into the physical exam. Now, to improve our ability to categorize things a little bit more with a framework, we're going to categorize movements into two big macro buckets. Number one, is it painful or not? And number two, is the movement restricted or not? So with that said, step one in terms of going through the objective exam is we're going to compare active range of motion versus passive range of motion. And we want to see, again, is there pain or not? And is the movement restricted or not? So for example, let's take the shoulder. Let's say someone comes in with shoulder pain and they actively flex their shoulder and it hurts. Then we put them on the table and we passively flex their shoulder. It also hurts. 
both active and passive range are restricted. Step two would to be go to go into a local biomechanical exam and assess what we would call joint play or accessory movement at the joint. So this is giving us an insight into the into intraarticular involvement. So if we have an active range of motion that's restricted, we have passive range of motion that's restricted, and then we go in and we test the glenohumeral joint, and all of a sudden we reproduce pain, but we have a lot of range, a lot of play in the joint. Well, then I'm thinking to myself, maybe the active and the passive range is restricted given to protective tone or protective tightness <clears throat> that the central nervous system is trying to protect a intraarticular sensitivity. After doing a local biomechanical exam, at that point, we can then go into what Syriax calls the selective muscle tension testing. Now, <clears throat> we can do this at mid-range, or we can do this at end-range positions. So the selective muscle tension testing is essentially just doing an isometric test where the joint itself is not moving, but we are imposing tension through contractile structures. So if we should be all familiar with Syriax's selective muscle tension testing categories. So if we have a strong and a no pain, then that's totally normal. If we have a strong but a painful situation, well, then we're suspecting some type of contractile sensitivity, potentially. If we have a weak and a non-painful situation, well, then I'm thinking to myself, all right, is there segmental involvement here? In other words, is there's a neurological situation going on where there's a hot nerve root at the associated segment in the spine? that innervates the area that we're testing. For example, for testing uh, the shoulder, external internal rotation, or the biceps. And then finally, do we have a weak and painful situation? And in, in Syriax's framework here, that could be a potentially um, sensitive tendon, a lesion, either minor or major lesion of said tendon. So when we look at steps one through three. So we looked at active versus passive. We looked at joint play, and then we looked at isometric tension. If the person's very sensitive, we're probably only going to do isometric tension at mid ranges. And we look at the aggregate or the cluster of all those findings in relationship to the subjective exam. And if there is a consistent painful pattern throughout, let's say it's consistently painful with active and passive testing, uh, local biomechanical testing or joint plate testing also reproduces the primary pain. And then we go into a uh, muscle isometric muscle tension test, and that also reproduces the pain. Well, then I'm suspecting some type of injury. And then we would then consider an MRI after we go through a rehab, acute phase one rehab process where we're managing the triggers throughout their day, slowly progressing them from active assisted to active range of motion, maybe low threshold isometric drills. And if eight weeks go by and the person is still complaining of issues and limitations in their activities of daily living, then I would consider imaging. Now, I am going to use a clinical case study 
of a patient of mine to help wrap this all together. But there's a few other things that I just want to bring up before we go any further. Through my OMT training, there were a few little nuances that uh, Freddie Kaltenborn's system really helped with the logical thought process as we go through the physical exam that I hadn't been introduced to prior. So let me use an example because it's always easier to use an example. Let's, let's use the shoulder again. Let's say that active shoulder flexion was painful and limited. Okay. And then we go into a table test and we take the shoulder passively into flexion and it's painful again. Freddie Coltonborn uses uh, alleviation and um, provocation testing to help suggest an intraarticular and extraarticular sensitivity. So let me explain that. So let's say the, the sh we take the shoulder into passive flexion and then we get to the point of pain. At the verge of the pain, what we would do is we would apply axial traction to the glenohumeral joint. So essentially, unload the joint. And if the pain is minimized, then we're suspecting some type of intraarticular sensitivity. If the pain is sensitized with traction at the verge of pain, then we're thinking, okay, this may not be intraarticular necessarily. Maybe this is a tension sensitivity because as I apply tension through the glenohumeral joint, I'm putting tensile stress through extraarticular structures. Now, we can't make a definitive conclusion there, but this at least helps direct our thought process as to what the person is sensitive to, what is alleviating for this person, and that can dictate the treatment plan in terms of what we might do to this person manually for manual treatment, what exercises we may select. So for example, if traction alleviates the pain at the verge of shoulder flexion, then in the early phase of rehab, I might not choose a lot of closed chain activities at the beginning because they're sensitive to compression. Let's take that same example and let's say in the subjective history the person isn't necessarily complaining of shoulder pain during shoulder movement. The person is complaining of shoulder pain at rest. That was a subjective cue that my mentor Martin had me really focus in on to suspect some type of cervical involvement or a um, what he would call that smells like cervical radiculopathy. So you flex the shoulder, they get pain. In that moment, you have them stay in that position with the shoulder. We come behind the patient and apply cervical traction. If cervical traction alleviates the shoulder pain and flexion, well then I'm su suspecting, excuse me, some type of somatic referred pain from the cervical spine. So now I'm going to go and screen segmental sensitivity or I'm going to do a neuro screen because I'm interested in the cervical spine in that situation. So to wrap it up here, when we look at active versus passive range of motion in step one of the orthopedic exam or the physical exam, we can use traction alleviation 
or um, compressive provocation testing to help suggest either intra-articular or extra-articular sensitivity. Are they sensitive to compression or are they sensitive to tension? All right, now I'm going to bring up one other point before we dive into this clinical case study. So if someone has pain and their movement is restricted versus pain, yet the joint is moving freely or even excessively. So for example, there's a big discrepancy between the active range of motion and the passive range of motion. That In that case, I am sub suspecting more of a structural involvement than if the person has pain and the movement is restricted. Restricted. Now, I know that's a generalization there, and I wouldn't make decisive. Um, I wouldn't make a conclusion based off of that. But it's it's something that I consider that's in the back of my mind. If if I have a joint that's painful and it's moving way more passively than they can control actively, and it reproduces the primary clinical complaint. Now we have a joint that needs stability. And if and if the history also suggests that there was some type of mechanism of injury, a high velocity or high force situation, that is when I may recommend an MRI or an Im or an imaging situation earlier on in the rehab process rather than waiting several weeks prior. Now, just because I refer out for imaging doesn't mean we can't still take them through phase one of rehab, but that will at least save the patient time in terms of ruling out a significant structural pathology. All right, so let's go on to the clinical case study here. So to make things straightforward, I have in front of me the letter that I wrote to the doctor for my patient, given that I was suspecting structural involvement in his shoulder. So I'm going to read this letter verbatim. To whom it may concern, I am an out-of-network physical therapist who is currently managing Bob's case. Bob is reporting intermittent right shoulder pain, clicking, clunking, which is triggered when his shoulder is near end ranges of flexion, abduction, and external rotation. Alleviating factors seem to be when the shoulder is at rest and or in mid ranges of motion. He reports the mechanism of injury seemed to be three years ago while he was spiking the ball during a volleyball game. During the spike, Bob reports that he felt and heard a pop, a crack, and then his arm dropped while sharp pain radiated down the arm into the bicep, shoulder, and lat area. Following the incident, Bob reports being unable to perform basic activities such as writing, dressing, and bathing. After six weeks of formal rehab, he was able to return to activities of daily living as well as exercise pain-free. However, to this day, he still reports intermittent sharp pain, clicking, clunking in the right shoulder with extreme ranges of motion that interferes with his participation in martial arts and general exercise, as well as intermittent night pain. 
So before I go into the objective testing here, I just want to highlight a few points here. Number one is the time frame. So this incident happened three years ago, right? So we talked about in the subjective history, the time frame of the incident. So here we have a chronic situation. He did go through formal rehabilitation, which improved his symptoms in terms of activities of daily living, as well as allowing him to get back to exercise. So the meat and potatoes of the acute injury and the subacute injury was managed well and allowed him to get to a certain level of activity again. However, three years later, he's still getting, getting intermittent sharp pain clicking and clunking in the right shoulder at extreme ranges of motion. So this is starting to interfere with him doing high performance activities. He's a martial artist, right? And then we also talked about in the subjective history, considering night pain. So this client was getting intermittent night pain. And when I dove a little deeper into asking him about his night pain, it was when he rolled over in bed or when he moved his shoulder. So it was very specific and it was a very consistent pattern. All right, now we're going to go into the objective testing. So I looked at his left shoulder, active versus passive ranges of motion. Flexion and abduction was at 170 degrees, totally normal, and active and passive were the same. External rotation, he had 90 degrees of active range of motion and 100 degrees of passive range of motion, but there was no pain. And then the internal rotation was normal. We had 60 degrees of both active and passive. Okay, so now the right shoulder, which was the symptomatic shoulder. Flexion was 170 degrees of both active and passive. At abduction, again, 170 degrees of active and passive. No reproduction of the primary clinical complaint. Now we get into external rotation. He had 90 degrees of active range of motion there but 110 degrees of passive range of motion and external rotation reproduced the primary clinical complaint. However, internal rotation, normal range of motion, 60 degrees for active and passive, no complaints of pain or no reproduction of the primary clinical complaint. Next, we went into glenohumeral joint plate testing. Left shoulder was totally normal. Nothing, ab nothing spoke to me. Then we went into the right shoulder. There was an increased glenohumeral anterior translation, but I would say about a grade two, and there was a mild subluxation. And he reported a reproduction of, a, of the primary clinical complaint, so he had pain when I did that, as well as a palpable clunking click. Myotomal testing was totally normal. Both sides, reflexes were totally normal. We then went into special tests in the right shoulder. We had a positive anterior apprehension test via crank test. So a positive crank test and a relocation test and a positive fulcrum test for the anterior instability. All of the above special tests also reproduce the primary clinical complaint along with a palpable click and clunk. So by this point, I was pretty concerned about the structural integrity of in intraarticular structure, in this case, a labral situation or a slap tear. That was my number one concern. The left shoulder, all the testing that I just spoke of were totally normal. 
no laxity was um, palpable and there was no clunking, clicking and no reproduction of pain. So to finish off this letter to the doctor, I said, given Bob's mechanism of injury, a trial of conservative management with partial resolution, along with the cluster of positive testing for anterior joint laxity associated with pain and reproduction of his primary clinical complaint, I'm concerned about the structural integrity of the anterior superior labrum. Now, I could have made that a little bit more superficial, and I could have said, I am concerned about the structural integrity of intraarticular structures, but at this point, a lot of things were leading to the anterior superior labrum. Okay, back to the letter. Given Bob's age and desire to continue participating at a high level of martial arts and exercise, I'm referring Bob out for a sports medicine consultation and potential diagnostic imaging to rule in or out a potential for labral involvement. Please do not hesitate to contact me in regards to Bob's case with any further questions or concerns in order to optimize his full return to high levels of physical activity. Now, interestingly enough, despite all of the puzzle pieces suggesting in a labral situation, Bob went to his physician, unfortunately had to get an x-ray first, just given the insurance policies. He then got an MRI and the MRI came back totally negative, which to me was actually really exciting because we then knew where to go from there in terms of uh, rehabilitation, giving him stability through his shoulder, trying to minimize the difference between the active and the passive range of motion. We had already known going into the situation that he had a asymmetrical um, T-spine mobility. And going into the MRI, I told Bob that, this is what we are hypothesizing, but regardless of what the MRI shows, this is the treatment plan that we're doing in phase one. So that helped to minimize fear avoidance behavior and it also helped to minimize any fear in the event that the MRI was to be negative. So I think when should we consider an MRI to summarize here? Number one, we can't look at imaging in a vacuum. Number two, it depends on the pattern and the cluster of findings between the subjective history and the objective exam. That is it for today's episode. I hope that helps. Thank you guys so much for listening. Have an awesome rest of your day. All right, y'all. Episode's over. If you enjoyed it, please follow us on Spotify share it with a colleague. It would mean so, so much to me and my team. If you have any questions or follow-up conversations that you want to nerd out about, please shoot me an email, remez at neuropedicspt.com. I answer all my emails. I'm more than willing to nerd out with any of you. Also, our virtual mentorship is open for enrollment. So if you're interested, please shoot an email to neuropedicspt at gmail.com and we will get back to you as soon as possible. Thank you again for listening and have an awesome day but I wanna let you know about our foundation's mentorship program. This is a 12-week program designed for orthopedic and sports physical therapists interested in better understanding how various motor control and neuromuscular rehab models can be integrated into any practice, making you a well-rounded therapist while improving outcomes. 
With the various motor control perspectives available to us today, oftentimes we can be left feeling confused, not knowing who to listen to and which course to take next. We know what it feels like to take a weekend course and feel like you have to choose between one approach or another, but it doesn't have to be that way. What if a certain depth of understanding in various models brought us some clarity, cognitive agility, and creativity into our clinical practice? That's our goal with this 12-week program. We'll dive deep into five of the foundational systems of motor control, like the reflex model and the dynamic systems model. We'll dissect each model's strengths and weaknesses to see how each model may complement one another through synergy. Here's what you'll get through this 12-week program. You'll get home study content, which will consist of PowerPoint audio lectures. You'll get one-on-one -on -one mentoring calls for an hour a week where we dissect practical case study examples from your current caseload so you can apply the content to your clients right away. We'll also have plenty of time for Q&A so you can get a deeper understanding of the home study material. Here's what you will not get from this program. We're not offering new techniques or fancy exercises, and we're not promoting new assessment or evaluation strategies. And rather than bashing other systems, we'll be taking a different approach towards motor control, an inside-out approach where we start with our why and our beliefs and values. If you're interested in learning more about this 12-week mentorship program, please email us at neuropedicspt at gmail.com. We're now offering free discovery calls so you can learn more about what we have to offer. And now, without further delay, let's dive into today's episode.